Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 2, as Brad just read uh, for us. I know uh, probably many of you are familiar with um, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? It's uh, especially if you um, grew up around Christianity, it's a beloved story uh, within Christendom. The allegor- uh, beautiful allegorical, allegorical story, there we go, um, that depicts so much um, of God's redemptive work in the world um, through these characters. Um, this thing is still falling off again, so if we have to adapt, we'll adapt. Uh, but the story um, of Chronicles of Narnia opens um, with the land of Narnia being very much like the land outside our windows right now, um, a land that is frozen. Um, and uh, Brad, I'm actually going to ask you to come up here and clip this on the back or something while I, because this thing is, all right, we're just going to switch up. Can you guys hear me? There we go. All right, we're in business. Um, Yes, so the Chronicles of Narnia um, opens with the land, like I said, very much like the land that we see outside our window this morning. Ruled by the White Witch in perpetual winter, uh, life of fear and oppression, creatures running about in fear and secrecy, knowing that this White Witch has spies everywhere. And the children of the story, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, have just entered the land and experienced its brokenness and fear. And in the midst of this perpetual winter and oppression, this is what the character, Mr. Beaver, says. He says, It is said that Aslan is on the move, that he has already landed. And with those words, C.S. Lewis writes this uh, in, in these novels. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous, and Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of the summer. Winter had started to be, to be overcome. It grew foggier and warmer until shafts of delicious sunlight struck down on the forest floor. The whole wood was ringing with the birds' music. Aslan is on the move. The story that is being depicted in the Chronicles of Narnia is a story of a returning king to overcome the rule of evil. And that is precisely what's happening in Mark Chapter 2. We saw last week that John the, Ma- ba- John the Baptist has announced the coming of the Messiah King as a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And Jesus identifies with his people in his baptism and his coronation as King by his Father's unqualified affirmation of him, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. People begin to get the sense that something is happening. 
that the world is about to change. And then this king, though the people didn't yet understand him as a king yet, begins to melt the winter of the broken world. The rest of Mark chapter 1 depicts this movement of Jesus inbreaking kingship and rule. Jesus calling people to repent and believe, to listen to his teaching and to follow him because a new kingdom is at hand. And this king calls fishermen to follow him. And he teaches in the synagogues and the peoples are astonished at his teaching. He casts out demons and people who have been under the reign of evil their entire lives are freed from the powers of evil. People were astonished at his authority. He heals a man who has had leprosy for years and has therefore been an outcast in society. And by his power, Jesus restores this man physically and socially. Aslan, as it were, has been on the move. Jesus the King in the Gospel of Mark has been on the move. And here we arrive at chapter 2. And because of the miracles that Jesus has been performing in these first two chapters of the Gospel of Mark, people are starting to crowd around him. Crowds have begun to gather, and anyone who is sick or living under the oppressive powers of evil are trying to get to Jesus. And anyone that has sick, uh, sick loved ones or, or loved ones who are under the powers of oppression and evil are trying to get to Jesus and trying to get their loved ones to Jesus. And wouldn't you? If you heard that someone could heal your broken body or mind or that of your loved ones, wouldn't you want to get close to them? We do this all the time in our lives with doctors and counselors and self-help books and podcasts. We see the things in our lives that are broken and flawed and need redemption and healing, and we are trying and we are spending so much of our energy seeking out ways to find healing and hoping that we can get close enough to something that will actually heal the brokenness and wounds and the decay of the world that we live in. And if we hear that something, that this thing can push back on the fall, on the brokenness, on frailty or decay that we or those we love experience, we want to get near those things or those people. And here in this passage, Jesus is in someone's house, and it is a packed house. It says that there was no more room, not even space to squeeze in at the door. At the end of verse 2, it tells us that Jesus was preaching the word to them. He was preaching the gospel as it tells us in chapter 1, the good news of the kingdom at hand, calling them to repentance and faith and teaching them that something has begun to shift in the course of human history. And meanwhile, there are four men who are trying to get their paralytic friend into Jesus in hopes that Jesus would heal him and give him the ability to walk again. After who knows how much of his life living in disability to have the ability to walk again, to feel the grass beneath his toes, to wade through water, to run through a field, to work and make a wage again. He wants to walk again, and his friends are trying to get him to Jesus. And it's beautiful how loving and committed his friends are to helping him get there. Word had spread that Jesus had come back to Capernaum, which was apparently his home at this time. But these friends can't get into this crowded house. But they're not to be deterred by the crowd. They go to desperate measures, and it tells us in verse 4, when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above. (laughs) There was likely an external staircase or ladder to the top of the house, and you can imagine as Jesus is in this packed house teaching, 
that a little bit of dirt begins to crumble and fall into the middle of the room. And people start to get a little bit distracted and then a chunk comes down and then sunlight breaks in and people squint up in the dusty light. And it says that when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And all of a sudden, these people who are packed into this house and dirt has started to crumble into the house see a man being lowered into the middle of the room. And if you're in that house, I'm sure you'd be like, what is happening right now? Jesus' teaching has been interrupted, and there's a new focal point in the room. And this question arises, what is Jesus going to do? This one who has so much authority, this one who has been on the move, will he heal this paralytic man? Will he give him what he asks for? Will Jesus give us what we ask for when we come to him? Will he answer our prayers? Jesus indeed responds to the man out of his grace and compassion. But Jesus does not respond to the man in the way that we expect him to. And probably not, or definitely not, in the way that his friends expected Jesus to either. And what does Jesus say to this break this uh, to break the breathtaking silence and rapt attention of this packed house that's watching this scene unfold? It says in verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? Your sins are forgiven? You can imagine the puzzlement. They just broke through that roof to get this man healing from paralysis. And Jesus, you respond by telling him his sins are forgiven? At first glance, Jesus' response might not only seem like a non sequitur, an out-of-turn response, but it might even seem to us to be insensitive. It may seem like this man and his friends plowed in asking for healing from a life-altering, life-shaping disability, and all Jesus gives is comforting words. But I think if we look at it that way, we'd be mistaken. I want to suggest to us this morning that this king, who has the proclivity to know people's hearts, actually knows that what this man needs more than anything else is not just comforting words and light of paralysis, what this text is more like than simply God or Jesus answering with comforting words is more like this man coming in to get stitches and Jesus doing a frontal lobotomy on him. It's as if Jesus says to this man, you came to get your body fixed, which it's obvious as the story unplays that Jesus takes seriously as well. But I came to fix your heart. I came to give you a new heart. I came to restore your relationship with the living God. It might also help us to better understand what's happening in this text, to understand how a Jewish person in the first century might have understood the relationship between sickness and sin. Because the Old Testament has a deep understanding of there being an integration, a relationship between sickness and sin. The psalm that we read from earlier in our assurance of faith, assurance of forgiveness, Psalm 103 says this in verses 2 through 5. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 3 of, of Psalm 103, if you guys want to pull it up on the slides for me. It says this, 
who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. In the Old Testament understanding, the under, there was an understanding that sickness existed because of sin. And for sickness to no longer exist in the world, sin had to be healed. Now, it's important for us to have a caveat here. We have to be careful when we talk about the relationship between sin and sickness. Because this is not to say that because you got a cold this week, it's a result of you losing your temper on your kids last week. Or as famously in 2001 and very sadly and horrendously, Pat Robertson, who's an evangelical uh, sort of uh, not fully orthodox Christian, I would say, claimed after Hurricane Katrina that Katrina was God's judgment on the evil of New Orleans. But in fact, the way that we can know that that kind of thinking is not only really unhelpful, but is theologically ungrounded is because of Jesus' teaching. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come upon a blind man, and his disciples ask Jesus, who sinned that this man is blind, him or his parents? And Jesus' response is this, neither. (laughs) That's not how this works. It's not a result of this man or his parents' sin, but that the works of God might be displayed. Job also, if you've ever read the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job who suffered mightily, uh, in the end of the story, his friends keep telling Job, Job, what did you do? What sin did you commit that's causing your suffering? If you could just figure out what sin it is that you committed and repent of that sin, then all of your suffering would go away. And God chides Job's friends who thought that Job was suffering because of a particular sin, and he calls them to humility and says, There's a, you can't understand sin and brokenness and suffering that way. But there's a strain of unhelpful spiritualization and what we might call intuitionism, where we just sort of have a sense of we know what God's up to, that claims to know why people are suffering in particular ways. And I want us to hear this morning as we talk about this Old Testament relationship between sin and sickness, that the Bible pushes back on that notion, that we can understand the particularity of how suffering or sickness results from sin. So what then is the relationship between sin and suffering? Why does Psalm 103 say that Jesus, that God forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases? And why does the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets deeply understand sickness and suffering, oftentimes in relationship to sin? Why does Jesus respond to this man who has been unable to walk for a long time, perhaps for his entire life, by offering him forgiveness? Are these just light words of comfort in the face of excruciating pain? No. On the contrary, where we often spend our lives trying to fix the effects of the fall of humankind, doctoring and counseling and working to bring order out of of chaos, which are all good in their own right, where we are seeking to bring an end to the effects of the fall and seeking healing for the effects of the fall, spending our whole lives either trying to fix those things or escape from those things. Jesus has come not to heal the wounds of his people lightly as Jeremiah warned against, but to dig up the roots, to cut all the way to the core of the human condition, to heal the heart. There's a tension in the gospel of Mark that we'll see between Jesus and his disciples and Jesus and the religious leaders of the day where they, without realizing it, were seeking to fix the effects of the fall, to deal with the things on the surface 
without dealing with the core of the human condition. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees and some of the scribes, these are religious leaders, saw Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands, and they saw this not as just bad hygiene, but as spiritually unclean. But Jesus points out the way that they have found ways of getting around God's commands by making them surface level. And Jesus says this to them in Mark 7, 14 through 15. And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. And what does this all have to do with Jesus healing and forgiving the paralytic man? Beloved, we are prone to put our hope in fixing the effects of the fall in our daily lives. Seeking healing from our depression and anxiety, healing for our broken bodies that are riddled by decay, disease, and sickness. Or we put our hope into fixing our societal problems, thinking that if we can get the right candidate in office, the ship will be righted. Or if the right social cause gets off the ground, we'll finally have a just society. And those things may all be very good to seek after and even to pray for. But when these four men tear a hole through the roof of the house that Jesus is in, seeking healing for the paralytic man, Jesus responds by saying, man, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus Jesus didn't just come to fix the effects of the fall. If that was all he came to do, we'd wake up tomorrow and we'd do it all over again. But Jesus came to bring renewal, restoration, and reconciliation to take our hearts of stone and to give his people a heart of flesh. He didn't come to give us stitches, but to root out the rot and to make his people new from the inside out. How? By restoring the relationship of the creatures with the creator. This is what forgiveness is about. And this is also why the scribes, the Jewish experts on the law, were upset by Jesus telling this man that his sins were forgiven. It says in verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They understood that to claim authority to forgive sin was not just expressing easy words of comfort. Rather, that Jesus was claiming the authority of the creator of all things to say, I know all that you have said, thought, and done. I know all that you have left undone, unsaid, and thoughtless. It's not good. And it is a front to what you were made for and called to. And in me, you are forgiven. Not just I have warm feelings about you, But as Psalm 103 says that we read earlier, so far as the east is from the west, has he removed your your transgressions, your shortcomings, your failures, your rebellion from you and from your identity. There is a new reality that has broken into the old one. The scribes and many other Jewish people thought that Jesus was coming. They believed that the coming Messiah would deal with sin but they still thought he was going to be a political Messiah. 
that he was going to rise as a ruling earthly king to crush the godless, and that's how he was going to deal with sin and deal with the fall and deal with its effects. But they did not expect him to come forgiving sins and certainly not to have the power to do so. And he rattles their cages. And if we actually let ourselves sit in this text, he'll rattle our cages too. Because what Jesus is saying is the first thing that you need is not healing from depression, though you may need it and long for it, or physical healing, or work-life balance, or better parenting skills. The first thing society needs is not right political leadership or the right social movement. The first and most essential thing that we need is forgiveness from the creator of all things, reconciliation with our maker, owning our shortcomings and looking, looking to God in feeble faith for his grace. You see, the problem of evil and brokenness is not just in our bodies and in our relationships, though it is there. It's in our hearts. And the king announces one of his primary missions in his new kingdom is to bring reconciliation and forgiveness between humankind and the creator God. Jesus perceived the scribes' anger and astonishment as, at his audacity to declare this, this man's forgiveness. And it says in verse 8, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? The scribes, who are the scholars and historians and theologians of the day, They've likely come to this event of this gathering of these people in this house, not out of longing or need, hoping to get help from this king who's on the move. The scribes have likely come to this house out of curiosity. And when they hear Jesus offer forgiveness, they're rattled and they, they're right to be rattled. And they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And if we're honest with ourselves, if someone came in here and claimed the authority of God, you shouldn't simply respond to them by saying, oh, cool. They actually probably have a righteous objection. We should be rightly rattled when we hear Jesus holding the authority to offer forgiveness. The problem with the scribes and Pharisees wasn't just that they had a righteous objection, though. The problem, as Matthew's telling of this story reveals, is that there was evil in their hearts. The paralytic and his friends thought they came, though they came not asking for the thing that they most deeply needed, they came in faith trusting in Jesus. And the scribes, though right in theology, came with cynical, unbelieving hearts. And how does Jesus respond to these two parties in this story? Does he blast the scribes to oblivion? Does he send the paralytic and his friends away with forgiveness yet without healing, saying, you misunderstood it all, go away? No. What Jesus does instead is he says to the scribes, why do you question these things in your hearts? He says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? 
Arise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, forgiveness might be easy to say because no one by looking can see whether or not it's effective. But if you say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, and the guy is still paralyzed, then you're obviously a fraud. So forgiveness is easier to say, but harder to know if it is really from God. And so what does Jesus do? He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Jesus heals this man and says, let the effectiveness of the words most obviously difficult to say prove to you that I have the authority to offer the truly hard thing, forgiveness on behalf of God. And the man rose up and picked up his bed and went out before them all. Beloved, what this story is telling us is that Aslan is on the move, that Jesus, the true king, the king the world has waited for, has entered this world. And in his second coming, he will make all things new, and he will melt away the winter from the whole world and all of the effects of the fall. And in his first coming, he has come primarily to melt the winter in the human heart to melt the winter in our hearts and to offer forgiveness even to those who are afraid to name that they need it when they come to him in faith. So what does all of this mean for us this morning? As you've probably already recognized, we are so often looking to God for good things that we should ask him for. But sometimes we miss the thing that is most central, the thing that we most need, forgiveness, Grace, mercy, the thing that is not light or costless, but that ultimately Jesus would pay for with the price of his own life on the cross. And if you come to Jesus desperately longing, longing for him to heal your brokenness, whatever that looks like in your life, consider that Jesus may be up to something even bigger than you have begun to see. And know that he still cares about your brokenness. He is still gracious to heal the paralytic man in this story. But I love the fact that even though they come asking for the wrong thing, he still gives them what they need. And if you come this morning with a critical heart like the scribes, there's an invitation here in this story for you too to release your superiority complex, which for most of us is veiled in security anyway, and to let Jesus reshape you. It's beautiful that even when we come asking for the things that are not what we most need, Jesus is still gracious to give us what we most need. It's even strange and beautiful in this passage, I don't know if you notice this or not, and this doesn't fit squarely into any of my theology, that it says in this passage that Jesus saw the, the four men that brought the paralytic. It says Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, not the man's faith, their faith, and forgave the man. I don't know exactly what to do with that, other than the fact that it demonstrates to us that Jesus is gracious beyond our imagination. And he counts the feeblest of faith 
perhaps even the faith of our friends when our faith is weak and relates to us out of his graciousness and his generosity. This passage closes telling us that the people were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like that. And I want to invite us to wonder that a king who has come in flesh and blood to deal with our deepest needs and yet still care for the things that we most long for. He has the authority to forgive. And if you will, come to him in faith, even feeble faith. He will do it. Come and worship this king. Glorify God. For the king has brought into the world something that is unlike anything else that we have ever seen. Jesus is on the move. Come and seek him. Let me pray for us, then I'll check into some Q&A. Jesus, we come this morning longing for so many things, longing for you to come and make all things new, longing for our minds, our bodies, our hearts, our relationships to be renewed. And thank you, Jesus, that you have begun the thaw that we need in this world, the winter that is all about our lives and hearts. But we know, Jesus, that you have come and you've shown us in this story that you have come to work the very root of all that is broken in the world. You're not content to just simply deal with the effects of the fall. You're gonna turn everything upside down. We ask, Lord, this morning that even in our feeble faith, that you would give us hearts of flesh, that you would make tender what is hard, that, Lord, in the places that we haven't even begun to recognize that we need your forgiveness, you would graciously show us our need and show us that your mercy is greater than our need. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'll take up a couple of our questions um, this morning. <laughs> um, <clears throat> first question. So, there's multiple O's. So, don't correct my behavior, question mark, or habits. Stop acting differently. Rather, be made new and have new fruit coming out of us. Um, great question, actually. And I'm going to say, first, yes, and then no. <laughs> Uh, first, yes, because I do think, and actually, man, I, I can't remember if this is in mere Christianity or not, but C.S. Lewis does just a fantastic job of talking about how we put the cart before the horse in our spiritual lives. Um, <clears throat> but we are creatures who are very prone to assuming that behavior modification is the way that we will change. Um, and it's not totally disconnected from that, right? Like, the reality is, like, for example... Um, if you are an alcoholic uh, and you are not sober, it's going to be hard to start dealing with some of the things in your life that you need to deal with without some level of sobriety. You're not going to see things clearly. So there's truth to that. And in fact, Jesus calls people to repentance, which is to turn away from sin and to him. And that's necessary. That's important. But at the same time, if we seek to change the effects of the fall, the outflowing of our hearts, without dealing with the inner reality 
we won't get very far. We will become, over time, what Jesus calls the, the Pharisees when he calls them whitewashed tombs, um, and which is such a visceral and uh, powerful image, which is something that is dead inside. Inside there is decay and rot, but on the outside it's painted like it's beautiful and pretty. And Jesus makes it so clear throughout his ministry that he has no desire to have people who are nice and well-behaved and say good things, say all the right things, like all the right social media posts, repost all the right things, but who are people who are not reckoning with the reality of their own shortcomings and brokenness and relying on his mercy and grace as the foundation for everything that they do. We can become incredibly moral people. In fact, I would actually argue that the scribes in this very passage and the Pharisees throughout the Gospels are people who much more so than you and I were faithful in keeping the law. They were really good at it. The apparent uh, trajectory of their lives was good and righteous. But Jesus was concerned with far more than external righteousness. Jesus wants righteousness that starts with a reliance on, Jesus, on God himself. And, and actually, probably the best way to maybe describe this, I'm going on for a long time on this question, is to go back to the very beginning of the story. The sin of humankind is to say, I don't want to be a creature. I want to have the power and autonomy of the creator. So how are we going to live the way that God has called us unless we become people who are creatures again, who live underneath the kind rule of God, who rely on his provision and grace? That's the reorientation of what's happening here. That's why nothing can change until humans actually, our relationship is restored with God because we're made for that. Um, so hopefully that gets at uh, your question. That was, I maybe took too long on that one. I'll try to give a very brief answer to one last question. Uh, his forgiveness and Jesus' authority to do so was confirmed by his healing. How do we maintain faith when we don't have that confirmation through healing in our own life? When depression never heals, or a job doesn't come through, uh, and the dead doesn't rise, how can we have confidence in his answers to our prayers of forgiveness when he doesn't seem to respond to so many other prayers? Man, what a great question. And I also want to note, too, that there are other places in the gospel, specifically with uh, the Pharisees, when they ask for Jesus to give, him, to give them a sign. And they say, uh, they say, give us a sign to prove to us who you are. And Jesus says to them, I'm not going to give you a sign because it wouldn't change your hearts, even if I did. And I think sometimes we naively think that if God just gave us a sign, that it would fix the struggles with doubt that we have. And I'm not convinced that that's true. We talked about last week, actually, one of you asked about John the Baptist, um, who was the one who prepared the way of the Lord. He was the prophet to prepare the way of the Messiah. And when he was in prison, he sent messengers to Jesus to ask if Jesus was the one that they were waiting for. If John the Baptist still had questions about Jesus, don't you think that even if we saw and had signs, we also would still wrestle with doubt? Now, I say that, and I don't want to dismiss the heart of the question, which is to say, it's really hard. It's hard to wait. 
It's hard to long. It's hard to live in light of unanswered prayers. Um, But what our hope is as Christians is in the gospel stories that we're talking about. That while we haven't seen someone rise from the dead, the church still exists 2,000 years later, and it is staked on the resurrection of Jesus. It's not that there aren't things that we look back to of God actually acting in the world that we, haven't, we don't have a history of or that there aren't things that we can look back to. I know that any of us in our moments of skepticism and doubt can try to pick all those things apart. Um, so Jesus has entered into the world in actual history in real time and place. And even if in our, the moments of our lives we found healing in those things, I think we would still wrestle with doubt. Um, that's probably an unsatisfying answer. If you want to talk more about that, I'm happy to talk about more, more about that. Um, but yeah, great questions. And I'm going to turn it over to Brad for communion. Do you need this? Okay.